it will be difficult, if not impossible, for a church body to attain cultural humility, cultural competence, if they don't have a leadership that is culturally humble and culturally competent. So how does a leadership do that? How do they make strides towards cultural humility? How do we get there? That's what we're going to talk about today on the All Things to All People podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast with Michael Burns. I am Michael Burns, and we're continuing to go through the book, All Things to All People, although we are quickly coming towards the end of the book. And uh, as I said in the intro, we're going to talk about culturally humble leadership today. And as we do near the end of uh, this book, Uh, The All Things to All People podcast is not just limited to the book, All Things to All People. We're going to go beyond that. And so we're going to start a a new book next. So please do go uh, on the Facebook page for All Things to All People podcast and uh, find the poll on there and, and vote as to what the next book and topic is going to be. That we'll go through, and I, I will uh, I'd appreciate you doing that. Um, I gotta say that as I start this episode today, you know, I, I record my little studio here is right next to this big window in my office, and so I can look out the window as I'm recording, and it is an amazing fall day. Uh, the the wind's blowing just slightly. It's really nice and warm today, actually, kind of almost unseasonably warm. The leaves are falling, and uh, actually this morning I just went out and did a little bit of raking uh, to get the yard ready for some things that we're uh, having uh, a group over for an outside Bible talk tonight. Um, but what a, what a beautiful day, and... Uh, I have no reason, you have no reason to really care about what the day is on the day that I'm recording this, but I just thought, I looked out and I thought, wow, that's cool, so I I thought I'd share that with you. Um, Maybe I'm going crazy from just the ongoing year at hand. Um, This will be a, a year for the memory, uh, for the, for the book, say, we'll, we'll be talking about this. Uh, for a long time, probably telling kids and grandkids and and great grandkids about the things that happened in 2020 and the man, the pandemic and the quarantine and shortages and weird things there and shutdown of school and sports and uh, everything else and and you know churches had to find different ways, alternate ways to meet. Uh, I don't like saying that churches stopped meeting because I don't know of any that did. Uh, we just uh, transformed a little bit and adjusted. Um, but the church is uh, its a group of people living out the reality of God's kingdom uh, together. Uh, it's not an event on a certain day. It's not a building. It's not uh, anything like that. And so we just continued on in, in different ways. But um, Man, everything has been impacted. And then you add in uh, so much of the social unrest and conflict 
this year and um, the presidential election, if you're listening in the United States, and that's caused a lot of um, just angst and, and you know, division uh, as a potential, uh, both in the country and in the body of Christ, which should not be the case, but often is. And so it's just a crazy year. And it's a crazy year to be a, a leader uh, of any capacity in a church. It's been challenging. You know, we had a whole year calendar and ideas and fun events planned out and spiritual events and all kinds of things planned out for the year. And and uh, I thought we knew how it was going to go. And then early March, that was all thrown out the window. And you just have to make up a new plan on the fly and constantly adjust as situations change. And um, it, it, you know, it's always a challenge to lead in a spiritual group. And uh, this year has certainly put that to the test more than most. But one of the ongoing challenges of leadership, especially when you're in a diverse church, which is kind of the assumption that we're making here uh, as we go through all things to all people, is um, the fellowship of churches that I belong to, are uh, almost all of them are diverse Uh Ethnically, culturally, tribally, you know, socioeconomically, uh, not that we're perfectly inclusive or perfectly um, diverse in, in every way, and we still have work to go there. But that being diverse then lays out the challenge of cultural humility and inclusiveness and being all things to all people in a biblically healthy way, not in a a culturally trendy way. We don't care about that here. That's not our concern. We are trying to live out the scriptures. And so as leaders, we need to be culturally competent and humble. So let's, with that said, let's jump into the reading today. And a little bit of a longer-ish chapter for this book. So we'll we'll focus on the reading. I may not uh, interject as much today, but I make no promises because as I get going, uh, who knows? I might change my mind. The church had hit a snag. In one sense, this was nothing new. It was a group forged through controversy. The apostles had followed Jesus, watching him engage with detractor after detractor. He was eventually tortured and executed in the most humiliating manner available in the first century. Roman crucifixion. After his incredible resurrection, they began to proclaim the good news that Jesus really was the long-promised king of all, and his resurrection and ascension proved it. But it wasn't smooth sailing. They were threatened with violence or imprisonment from the Jewish leaders, threats that they could only take all too seriously, Then they had to deal with an internal issue as a well-known married couple in the church pretended to fully identify with this new family forming around the Messiah, but they were lying and the Holy Spirit took swift action. That sent fear and shockwaves throughout the body. After that, there was another wave of persecution for the apostles. Yet the church overcame each one of those obstacles and continued to thrive. Then came another snag, but this one seems uh, potentially different. This was the first time their unity was threatened. 
That's a significant problem for a group whose primary message is that God is reconciling the nations with each other as his family. Demonstrating disunity with a message like that is problematical, to say the least. They were certainly acting like an extended family. They spent the bulk of their resources in those early days ensuring that there was no surplus or lack in the church. Those in need, especially the vulnerable widows, were given, I feel like I said that weird, vulnerable widows. Did I say that weird? It sounded weird to me. It sounded like I said whittles the first time. I may have. I don't know. You don't care. Let's go on. Those in need, especially the vulnerable widows, see now it's in my head, were given daily portions of food. But the old cultural and historical tensions quickly arose. The Hellenic Jews believed that their widows were getting short shrift, implying that the Hebraic widows were getting the better of it. We don't know all the details, but we do know that the leadership of the church at this time was likely dominated by Hebraic Jews. This looks like a case of a non-dominant group feeling neglected by a dominant group. The church was in peril. Was the gathering of the nations at risk before it even got out of Palestine? How would the leadership respond to this impending crisis? We're not given a great deal of information, but what we are shown reveals to us a culturally competent and spiritually wise group. We see a team that was quick to listen and validate the concerns of the non-dominant group. They showed compassion and understanding. They were quick to act, but without overreacting. They displayed respect without ever patronizing the Hellenic believers. They implemented a spiritual solution and took a countercultural approach. They surrendered power and influence to the non-dominant group. The spirituality and skill of these culturally competent leaders staved off what could have been a disaster. And it raises the question, what will a culturally competent leadership in the 21st century church look like? Most people don't do so well under leaders who are controlling, coercive, unwilling to listen, fearful, and prone to keeping power in their own hands. Conversely, humans flourish when they have leaders that are humble, sacrificial, willing to admit mistakes, trusting, and inclusive. Given the choice of those two extremes, I think we all know what kind of leadership we would choose. There are churches that truly have diverse leadership and diverse influence at all levels, but most multicultural churches that I have seen still have a leadership team that primarily represents the dominant cultural group. This means that most leadership teams in multicultural churches have some room for growth toward cultural inclusion and competency. For the rest of this chapter, we'll look at the characteristics of competent leadership in dealing with others, particularly non-dominant cultural groups. In terms of the groups themselves, their approach to the church, and their vision for the future. Leadership and non-dominant groups. The first characteristic that leadership groups must have is the willingness to listen. That does not mean that they merely have an open ear if and when approached. They must seek out the opinions and stories of others. They will ensure that they are hearing from groups that are diverse in their authority and power, 
influence, age, ethnicity, background, gender, etc. I've seen four types of leadership groups when it comes to issues of multiculturalism and inclusion. Number one, the kind that is oblivious to these issues and doesn't see it as a need to listen to people's concerns. Number two, the kind that thinks they have a handle on the issue but doesn't have their ear to the ground or has an incomplete team that they hear from and are often disconnected from what some segments of the population are feeling. And I'll say here that this is actually a really common one. Um, Leaders who, you know, they're good leaders. They've been successful in a lot of ways. And so they tend to maybe overestimate their skills or understanding um, of these issues. And, and some of it can just be a bit of a hubris, but sometimes it comes from having a, an incomplete team that you hear from, you know? So maybe you say, man, I'm going to talk to this person in the culturally non-dominant group, but you're only talking to one person. And that person's been a member of your church for 25 or 30 years. And so culturally, they maybe been very enculturated or they have a specific angle on, uh, you know, how they fit into the body and things like that. And maybe they're not a very good representative of the inclusiveness of your church or lack thereof. And so uh, maybe in that case, it's certainly better to hear from more people than a couple, but also um, to hear from uh, maybe some newer members, some younger members, uh, just a, a wider variety that will give you a fuller picture. Number three, back to the reading, the kind that knows there are issues and is willing to hear from people, but does not seek out opinions or pursue, pursue learning and growth for themselves. And number four, the kind that knows they need growth and is not just willing to listen, but actively tracks down the thoughts, opinions, and input of others. The second characteristic is to believe the frustrations of the non-dominant group. That doesn't mean we should overreact to every individual opinion or complaint, but there is a very real dynamic where non-dominant group members often feel marginalized. They feel that their observations are dismissed because they're not noticed by those in leadership. When people say they've experienced something, especially when it is more than one person saying it, pay attention, believe them. In my context, in the United States, leaders who are white often have very little concept of how damaging and even traumatic it is for people of color and non-dominant groups to muster the courage to point out an area where they feel they are being marginalized in some way, only to be met with defensiveness or being told that they did not perceive things correctly. Leaders that are of the dominant cultural group must understand that it's very possible that while they did not intend something, the impact it has may be quite different than the intent. When a member of a non-dominant group shares something, a culturally humble leader will avoid defensiveness and own their action, even if it had an impact different from what they intended. The third characteristic follows on the heels of the first two. Once you've listened and believed what people say, validate their thoughts. The Hebraic Jewish leadership in Acts 6 could have easily dismissed the concerns of the Hellenic Jews, claiming that they were being critical or too sensitive. 
But they didn't do that. They obviously had not seen the problem or they would have addressed it already. But once they heard about it, they believed it and validated those feelings by springing into into action. It's important in these issues that the church sees the progress. These things can often take time to be addressed, but far too often progress is behind the scenes or very slow, and it easily comes across as inactivity, impassivity, or lack of concern. As leaders, if you are validating and taking seriously the concerns of others, let the process be as visible as possible. The fourth characteristic is respect. If we genuinely love people, we will respect them. Respect is a funny thing because it can be so conditioned culturally that a group may be actively demonstrating respect to others in their minds, but it comes across as something very different to the recipients. The quickest ways for leadership to demonstrate disrespect to non-dominant groups is by making them feel dismissed, patronized, or counterbalanced. Allow me to explain the last idea. Counterbalancing is when we allow a small group to express their opinion, but we don't agree with it, so we immediately seek to counterbalance it with the leadership's opinion. This is often done in a passive-aggressive manner, but is far more transparent than we think, and it is toxic. Disrespect can also come unintentionally, and leaders must be on their guard against this. A few years ago, my wife and I gave a crossing line workshop on culture and race at a church, and it was a great weekend. For the next week, the leaders of the church had already planned a sermon on not complaining. They're good-hearted and loving leaders and not intended the sermon to be a repudiation of anything in our workshop or to be aimed at the non-dominant cultures in the church, but it came across that way to several people. Before that Sunday was even over, we were receiving concerned phone calls and messages. It seemed like an invalidation and disrespect to many members of the non-dominant group. Leaders need to be extremely careful not to inadvertently send messages that are different from what they had in mind. Leadership Qualities A few months ago, my younger son got me to watch a television show that I had never seen before. It's called The Office. And although it went off the air over five years ago, it is now the most watched show on Netflix. Let me just say that from when I actually wrote this book, it's probably like two years now, and my younger son still watches The Office constantly. Now, it's kind of a funny show, but I'll bet you that dude has seen every episode at least three or four times. Uh, It's unbelievable. And then we have a friend who's a college student who's living with us right now, and I think he's watched this show like five times all the way through. I don't know what it is with this younger generation and this show that started almost 20 years ago, like 15 years ago or something. Um, But, man, they love it. Anyways, back to the reading. The boss depicted on the show is a buffoon named Michael Scott. Scott seems to think he has the greatest ideas, is deeply respected by his employees, already knows what's going on, and rarely takes input from anyone around him. It makes for a hilarious situation comedy, 
but he would not be what we would consider a culturally competent leader in any way. In fact, I have watched a number of episodes with my son, and I just I can't do anything but laugh. I'm like, that dude would be so fired in the real world, like 10 times over. Um, but man, anyways, what are some key qualities of a leadership team that will continue to grow in their aptitude? The first is that they are introspective. Good leaders are willing to examine themselves. What are they doing that is good and needs to keep being developed? What do they need to do less of, more of, or stop altogether? Do they make others feel valued and included? Do they create an atmosphere of approachability? For a leader to truly be introspective, they need to be willing to hear from others and seek input. They may not always want to hear it, but it is necessary. And for a leadership group to really get outside help, I will add, um, or, or to get that, you know, really assessment of others, they want to talk to their church and hear from others, but they may need to get some outside perspective and help too. Uh, that can be very valuable. Back to the reading. In that vein, good leaders will self-assess culturally and know their own preference and expressions so that they can begin to consider their level of cultural acumen. The second characteristic is openness to being wrong. A leader who can never admit when they've made a mistake or have a shortcoming is a leader who will not grow and will certainly never be culturally competent. The very heart of, a, of cultural effectiveness is a willingness to make mistakes and learn from them. It's often the most effective way to grow in this area. The third quality is a hunger to learn. Being all things to all people requires an attitude of lifelong learning. If leaders are not hungry to expand their knowledge base and not intentional about learning through many different methods, they will stunt their effectiveness. The fourth is being humble about having blind spots. Of course, humility is a presumed quality in a good leader at any level in the church, but specifically, culturally competent leadership groups will be aware that they have blind spots. All humans do. It's a problem when we think we see things clearly and completely. We all have biases, prejudice, and things that we will never see without the help of others. That's true of individuals and of groups. Leadership teams should regularly seek the input of others into matters of diversity and inclusion, which would include those from outside their church. Once again, I gave an, a, a side comment that jumped ahead of the reading itself. Uh, that's, just, that's just the way my mind works, so deal with it. Um, da, 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 and outside uh, f those from non-dominant groups and within their fellowship. I wonder what it would look like if leaders willingly gave up their right to always have things go their way. What if they shared power even when they might have reservations because they believed that doing so could be in the best interests of the community? Now, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? The fifth quality is creativity. Diversity demands us to get out of our comfortable little worlds and do things in a new way. This will require a willingness and openness to creative solutions. That's often uncomfortable for those of us in leadership in churches because it will push us past the way things have always been done and into a new and often uncharted territory, which can be terrifying. Secure and creative leaders will be willing 
to throw new things against the wall and see what sticks and own it when things don't work well. It's okay to have misfires on occasion, but let ingenuity have its place. The sixth and final characteristic that we will consider is the willingness to distribute power and influence. This is precisely what the leaders in the Jerusalem church did in Acts 6. They were willing to diversify the power and influence in the church by turning one of the most important ministries over to the direction of the non-dominant group. How many leadership teams are willing to go beyond merely seeking input from others, as valuable as that is, and actually give them decision-making influence and power in the community? That might even mean that, on occasion, they do something a bit differently than the group of leaders would. Does there still need to be some level of oversight? Most likely. But competent leaders are also willing to let others take some risks and do some things that they might not. That's what diversity is all about. Guiding the church. We were at a church leadership conference a few months ago, and a large group of us separated into about five cars to go from the hotel where we were meeting to the restaurant where we were going to dine together. I was in the third car in line as we dutifully fell into place behind the car that was leading the way. After driving a few miles down a busy street, we pulled into a parking lot that didn't look like it belonged to a restaurant. We soon realized that it wasn't the destination, and we started heading back in the direction we'd just come from. After another minute or two, we turned back in the other direction. Keep in mind that having five cars take a U-turn is no small feat. After a little more driving, we started heading back toward the hotel, passing that and going the complete opposite way from our original direction. We finally pulled over in another parking lot to regroup. It was only then that the people in the lead car admitted that they thought they knew the way, but they had no idea where they were going. We eventually got to our destination, but we wasted a lot of time following leaders that did not know where they were headed. A culturally competent church will have leaders who understand the times and know where the church needs to go. For starters, they must embrace that the mission of the church is to gather the nations. This doesn't mean that they will have all the answers, but that they will take seriously the task of being all things to all people and developing and maintaining the diversity of the church. Here are five elements that inclusive leadership will value and implement into the life of the church. Casting a vision. A big part of leadership is having a vision for the church. Where are you going and how are you going to get there as a community? The vision must come from the Holy Spirit and God's word and not a worldly perspective, but it should be a careful consideration of how a church community can best embody the multicultural gospel in the context of its locality. An effective vision for a body will both inspire and challenge people to grow and go beyond where they have been. It will be delivered with passion, but not seem reactionary or emotional. It will explain and work toward meaningful solution of the problems. It will call for everyone to be part of it and offer ways in which they can do so. And it will demonstrate that God is ultimately the one leading the church toward this destination. On the other, I'm sorry, that's not at all what it says. Let me try again. 
One other word on sharing a leadership's vision with the church. It must be communicated often, clearly, and concisely. Do it only a couple times a year and it will not become part of the lifeblood of the church. Do it vaguely or ambiguously and you will lose people. Do it inefficiently and the church will lose focus. Communicate, 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 communicate again, communicate some more, and when you think you may be overdoing it, you are probably just beginning to get through to people. I have to admit that last part, um, uh, I have borrowed, I won't say quoted because I'm sure I've changed it a bit, but gosh, I think the first time I heard that was probably 15 years ago from a guy named Tony Singh in, he was in Chicago at the time. And he said something along those lines, communicate, 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 over-communicate. When you think you've completely over-communicated, you're just beginning to get through to people. And that's true. Uh, the second element, teaching and training. John Wooden retired from coaching college basketball over 40 years ago, and yet he's still considered the greatest coach to this day. Wooden's players will tell anyone who listens that he was, a fir he was first and foremost a teacher and trainer. That's why his teams were so successful. He didn't just give them plays or a system. He trained them in every aspect of life. It's easy for a leadership team to call the church too racial and cultural diversity and inclusion, but equipping them for the task is an entirely different animal. Let me just stop and go back a little bit and say I've even read stories about John Wooden teaching and training his players how to put on their socks, how to tie their shoes, you know, things that small he taught and trained. Back to the reading. If you want to know what a church truly values, look at what it spends its time teaching and teaching on and training in. There you will find its true treasure. If Paul spent over 25% of his writings teaching and training the church on the mission of the gathering of the nations and the task of being all things to all people, then why would we not? I don't think the answer is that we're more adept and skilled at those things than Paul's original audiences were, and so we need less teaching. Leadership teams need to have frequent training in racial and cultural diversity and sensitivity, as well as competence training. In our day and age, I believe it's also necessary to remind people that this is a vital aspect of the gospel. It's not bending to the tastes or trends of the culture. It is preparing us to take the message of the kingdom to those who need it. It's difficult to offer specifics beyond what has been provided through this book because each church body is a different place with different needs and in a different context. The local leadership will have to discern what should be taught, but it needs to be consistent and something that the entire church leadership is clearly and vocally behind and engaged in. Let's look at element number three. Honesty and transparency. Your church has probably not reached the ideal state of diversity yet. I doubt that it has. It may very well have a long way to go. The best policy is to be upfront and honest about it. Share with the church the challenges that you face together. Part of the vision should be a truthful assessment of what you do well and what you don't. If your leadership team is imbalanced, and not yet diverse, make it clear that you're aware that this is the case and explain what you are doing to be a full reflection of God's family of all people at every level of the body. 
ask the church for their pressure, their patience, and prayer. Element number four, willingness to take criticism and stay the course. Not everyone will embrace the call to be a culturally competent church. That's just a reality. They may insist on interpreting it as a partisan political position or reflecting worldly values or have some other justification. Those people are to be loved and brought along patiently and gently, but some may never come around. Listen to critics and other points of view. And always be willing to adjust if necessary. But a leadership team needs to be committed to the vision and task of the church within our mission and understand that they will occasionally hear criticism. They will need to stay the course and not let a few detractors derail the direction of the church. Hopefully, the critics will see the value and biblical truth of the vision, but they may not, and that must be okay. And the fifth element, leading and pushing. A competent church will have leaders that lead the way in competence. Let your growth be evident to all, 1 Timothy 4.15. Stagnant leaders will result in a stagnant church. Sometimes you may have to push the church a bit. We all need that from time to time when it involves going beyond our zones of comfort. Knowing when and how hard to push will take constant prayer and guidance from the Spirit, but will will result in a church that consistently moves toward where God wants us all to be. Future-focused. It is important for a church leadership team to not just think about the present, but to keep its eye on the future direction of the church. That, of course, is what vision is all about. But there are a few specific aspects of focusing on the future that I want to cover before bringing this chapter to a close. Revelation 5 Focused When I was a new disciple, it seemed like there was something fresh each week that the Spirit was calling me to address in my life or character. For a while, I stalled in my growth because I started to dispute that I could change in those areas. That's just the way I am, I argued. I obviously was unaware at the time that there's only one I am, and it's not me. I couldn't change because I was more focused on the present than on what I was supposed to become. As churches, we can make the same mistake. We can often limit our growth in multiculturalism and inclusion because we limit ourselves to what we are. Why add wide-ranging styles of music? When we only have a handful of people who connect better through that variety, why incorporate different languages into the worship service when a large majority speak the same language? Why integrate different approaches to communication and community when this is the way we've always done it? If those become our attitudes, we will never grow. Instead, we need to keep in mind that the goal is Revelation 5.9. We are a church of every tribe, language, people group, and nation. We are the gathering of all cultures, and that needs to be our target. The leadership group that cares about cultural competency will call the church to keep moving toward Revelation 5 as the vision of what we are trying to develop. The elements of community life should not reflect who we are as much as who God wants us to become. Intentionally Diverse As I write this, social media and news outlets in the United States are flooded with anger 
over a sweater that Gucci had on their website for their winter collection. The black sweater is a clever combination face mask so that it looks like a normal sweater with a puffy neck, but the neck rolls up when you want to cover up your nose and the rest of your face below your nose. It has a little circular area around the mouth cut out so that you can breathe, and that is the source of the controversy. The area around the mouth hole is red, so that when the mask part is pulled up, it looks disturbingly like an extremely offensive minstrel black face with the dark face and deep red exaggerated lips. Gucci has been accused of blatant racism with many calling for boycotts. The company immediately published an apology vowing to make sure that something like this never happens again. But in many respects, the damage is already done. The anger and frustration mirror the disgust that was generated almost a year ago when H&M advertised a line of children's hoodies with supposedly cute little sayings on them. One of them said, coolest monkey in the jungle, but had a young black model wearing it in their ads, which was sharply criticized. Both companies have now been accused of blatant racism. I could be very wrong on this, and I'm open to that possibility, but I've, I have a hard time imagining executives from a company sitting around in a meeting giggling to themselves as they intentionally plan out racist apparel, sure that it will slip by everyone's notice. Why would they do this? I fail to see the motivation. It just doesn't seem plausible to me. They've been accused of intentional racism, but honestly, I don't think that's the issue. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, and I hope it's not the truth of this situation, although I could be very wrong. My guess is that the cause is much closer to a systemic lack of inclusion at important levels of leadership. There are no decision makers in their inner circles who come from a culture or background that would understand why these things are offensive and hurtful. It's a stunning lack of awareness on their part, yes, but it also speaks volumes that there appears to be no one with the common sense to know why you couldn't have a product like that in this day and age. And it raises the question of why no one with that wisdom and experiences is in a position of power enough to blow the whistle and stop it before it even starts. When you don't have inclusion and diversity at all levels of influence, bad things like this happen. These corporate examples go beyond lack of diversity, of course, and include a shocking amount of ignorance and insensitivity. But I have to think that if there had been a broader base of power and influence, these distressing cases would have never occurred. They speak to the dangers that lurk if church leadership teams are not intentionally diverse. There are many other reasons, most of them quite positive, to have diverse leadership, but it doesn't help avoid insensitivities and shallow understanding. The more diverse a leadership is in areas of culture, race, socioeconomic background, and status, gender, etc., the stronger it will be. Look at it logically. Which option is more likely to skillfully lead a diverse congregation in a visionary, inclusive, and sensitive manner? A homogenous leadership group or a diverse one? 
Does that mean that we should put people onto a leadership team just to fulfill a quota and have diversity for diversity's sake? Well, absolutely not. But if a group is not diverse already, then it should have a plan to become so and consistently work towards that vision. If the leadership group of a diverse church is not diverse itself, then that speaks to some systemic issues within the body that need to be addressed immediately. No matter how loving and spiritual the leaders are, I can almost guarantee that if the group is not representative of the diversity of the body, there will be blind spots and there will be groups that feel neglected, misunderstood, underrepresented, or all three. Teams must also recognize the difference between reason and reasons and excuses. A reason explains why the situation is the way it is without seeking to justify it. It leaves open the possibility of change. An excuse justifies the situation and often closes the door to change because it denies that change is necessary or possible. If you do not yet have an appropriate representative leadership group, be honest about it. Examine the reasons openly and develop a solution that's spiritual and non-reactive but still urgent. Don't slip into the mode of making excuses, throwing up your hands and doing nothing or next to nothing and then asserting that disciples who are disturbed by this have bad hearts or are focused on the wrong things. And I notice a lot of times that happens um, with people who might criticize the move towards inclusion or diversity Oh, now we're focusing on external things. This is identity games or, you know, uh, we're focused on things that don't matter to the gospel. Yet usually says the person whose cultural group is in the dominant position and wants to maintain the status quo. Now, I'm certainly not saying we get obsessed with these things or exalt them above Christ or our love for one another or our unity or anything of the sort, but it is necessary, I think, to be all things to all people and pay attention to these things. Everything that we can glean from Scripture demonstrates that as the gospel spread into the kaleidoscopic world, the churches had diverse leadership. Antioch is perhaps the clearest example. Antioch was a diverse city, but one marked by ethnic separation. In the church, the dividing walls of race and ethnicity were scaled and torn down. There was such a diverse coming together that it even took Peter off guard when he first visited. But it wasn't just the membership. The leadership was equally inclusive. The list of leaders in Acts 13.1 highlights the broad range of social, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds that were present in the church. If they understood the importance of inclusive leadership, then so must we. Willingness to right wrongs. I'm unable to give this section the amount of time it deserves, but perhaps in the future someone else will pick up the idea that I present and develop it further. When we are not intentional about inclusion, we will be highly prone to simply reflecting the sins and shortcomings of the society from which we come. Why can it be so difficult for multicultural churches to develop leaders who come from non-dominant cultural groups? The answers lie more in the world around us than in the church. We simply mirror the results of centuries of unequal education, access to opportunity, attitudes that favor the dominant group, assumptions that members of the dominant group are more qualified and fit to lead, and so on. 
There may be other factors as well, but this is usually the biggest one. If your leadership group is not as diverse as it should be, then why not? And what are you going to do about it? And I think this idea, I'll break in here, of of mirroring the world is really what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 26. Uh, Throughout the book, he's describing ways in which they uh, are dividing because they're mirroring the world. And he says, we can't let that happen. In chapter 11, they're mirroring the social status uh, and, you know, hierarchy of, of the world in the Lord's Supper. And Paul chides them on that. In chapter 12, they're mirroring the social levels uh, and applying it to the spiritual gifts. And then in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 12, Paul says, look, those who are without honor, those who are of low status in the world, are, tr- are to be treated with special honor in the church. And those who are powerful or have um, honor out in the world, they don't need special treatment in the church. If we don't pay attention to these things, that's not favoritism. It's being intentional about not mirroring the inequities of the world in the church. It's about creating a new and alternate society. Let me finish up the reading here. Leadership groups that have yet to reach representative levels of diversity need to ask some tough questions as to why. I can think of five possible reasons. The first is that it is simply random and the result of a statistical anomaly. The second is that non-dominant groups are underrepresented in leadership due to intentional prejudice in the church. The third is that the individuals in non-dominant groups are not as spiritual on average as the dominant group. The fourth is that the dynamics of dominant and non-dominant cultures have been at play and have unintentionally given advantages within the community to the dominant culture. The fifth is that the historic inequities of society have simply been reflected in the church. If we look at those possible causes, the first seems unlikely as a consistent cause because that would also result in the occasional random case where a church has a much higher representation of non-dominant groups and leadership than their percentage in the body, something that is extremely rare. I would hope that we can rule out the second cause, and I believe that we can all dismiss the third cause as a ridiculous option. That would leave us with the fourth and fifth. If dynamics of dominant and non-dominant cultures have had an influence, then my hope is that the things we've covered in this book would begin to help us identify and address some of those issues, and to be more intentional about developing inclusive leadership. But it is the... A fifth cause that will take the most thought and creativity. It is possible that historic inequities of education, opportunity, and the like do present factors in who we feel might be equipped to lead. Without developing, I'm sorry, without delving too deeply into that, let's just assume that this is the case in a given country as they tend to see a pattern of underrepresentation in most of the churches in that nation. What are they to do? They could just resign themselves to the situation regarding who is ready to lead, but that would leave them as victims to the forces of the society around them. God will not magically do this for us. He expects us to do the work of reversing the ills of the world within the kingdom. 
That would mean that the existing leadership of a church would need to be very intentional about identifying and raising up leaders from non-dominant groups so that their multicultural church can be as inclusive in its leadership as in its membership. Let me give one example to show how this might work. I'll use the northern churches of the United States within my family of churches as an illustration. They're wonderfully multiracial and diverse in every way, but many struggle to maintain appropriate numbers of ministry staff and elders from non-dominant groups. That is not true for all, but it's impossible to deny that it is a pattern. The reasons are complex, but it seems likely that the inequities in education, wealth, leadership opportunities, and the like have been a contributing factor. Should we simply accept that hope, accept that and hope the imbalance goes away? What if these churches decided to develop a program to identify young disciples from non-dominant groups who could go into a special leadership training track that encouraged them to develop their spiritual gifts and leadership abilities? Included in that track would be special mentoring and available scholarships for ministry schools or seminary. This would not deny opportunity to any other group, especially the dominant group, but would be an addition to existing opportunities to help counteract the historic disadvantages that have been the hallmarks of our society. It would avoid the flaw of many affirmative action programs in the world that carve minority group quotas into a limited number of existing opportunities which may then result in someone from the dominant group being denied access to the opportunity simply because of, say, the color of their skin. A solution like the one I'm proposing would not impose any such negative possibility, but only create new opportunities to intentionally cut against the inequities that have been put into place because of the sin of the world. There are many other creative and probably better ideas that could be developed by church leadership groups, but I offer this merely as a specific example to help groups that find themselves in a similar situation start to think about the possibilities. Well, there you have it. I don't think I have too much more to add. That's the end of our time uh, here together today. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode as we uh, dive into culturally humble and competent leadership. Next time we'll get into uh, a culturally competent church as a whole, as a body, and what that looks like. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to allthingstoallpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Please continue to support the ministry. Um, you can purchase a book uh, or a Kindle version or you know thing, all, all nature of those things at michaelburnsteachingministry.com. And don't forget to go to the Facebook page and look for the poll on what topic we're going to tackle next. Uh, I think we'll only have like two episodes left on all things to all people. And then we'll, we'll head in a new direction. So um, let's hear your voice. And we'll see you next time on the All Things to All People podcast.